This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. You can find it on page 986 in the Bibles in your rows. It's also printed in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along as I read. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 16. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only in the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins." But wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Josh, one of the pastors here. Glad you could be here with us this morning. Uh, We are working through uh, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. One of, we were saying this last week as we get started, this is one of the earliest letters uh, that we have of Paul, one of the earliest documents in the New Testament, written just. 17 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So we get a window here into the very earliest life of the church. And today we're in chapter 2, and this passage actually is not the subject of too many sermons. Like if you go looking around online, you can't find too many sermons on uh, this first part of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And even when you read it on your own, this is one you're tempted to just kind of skim on past. Uh, There's not a lot of new ideas, not a lot of doctrinal content here. It's mostly personal correspondence, right, between Paul and this church. The one place, though, that you are likely to see this passage read publicly is uh, in an ordination service. 
right? When new ministers are ordained or, or, or perhaps a commissioning service for missionaries like the Edwards or uh, Christian workers of some kind. Because this is a really practical passage about how to do ministry, about how to live on mission, about how to impact other people. Look down at verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, Paul writes, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. This is a blueprint for how to do ministry, how to impact other people. Uh, Tim Keller was a pastor in New York City in our little family of churches. He died in May of pancreatic cancer. And uh, some people have called Tim the, the greatest English language preacher of the last 30 to 40 years. Now, I don't know how to benchmark that exactly. But whether it's true or not, he certainly was a very gifted preacher, a thought leader for at least a segment of modern Christianity. But what was so interesting to me was that when the tributes came pouring in after he passed away, the vast majority of them, yes, they talked very briefly usually about his public impact, but mostly they focused on what kind of person he was, what kind of personal interactions people had with him, the kindness has shown, the mercy exhibited, the patience and forbearance and gentle warmth given, the intentionality of his care. The tributes all seem to emphasize that though his impact as a public figure was great, it was exceeded by his embodied ministry with people. And isn't that what Paul is saying here or what he's prescribing? He says, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. The impact that you have on others will not come simply through what you say, but through the kind of life that you live before others and with others. Whether or not you have fancy words, the people around you need to see faith embodied in a person. And so in order to understand this passage, before we get into the details here, we need to do just a little bit of context. And we talked about this last week, so if you were here, it's a little bit of review, but uh, Paul had planted this church in Thessalonica, and though it was a fruitful ministry, it was also a good bit of opposition. In fact, it got so bad at one point that Paul had to flee under the cover of darkness. He was smuggled out of town uh, the night after a riot in the town, and so Paul had to leave, and he hadn't had the chance to go back. And this absence created the space for some of Paul's opponents, some of his detractors, to step in and launch a smear campaign, for lack of a better term. Right, these were folks who were saying to Paul, right, okay, listen, yes, he started this church, but he took off, right, and he hasn't been back. And so that means he's either a coward or, at the very least, he doesn't care about you, right? He left, he's not been back, maybe a coward, certainly he doesn't care. And in response to this, Paul says, guys, this just isn't true. And if you think back, Thessalonians, to our time together, you know it's not true. Because you saw my ministry, you saw my life, and yes, there are other people who will come through town as snake oil salesmen, hawking their hope, trying to make a profit off of you. But you know that wasn't us. You know we never tried to deceive you, verse 3. We never tried to flatter you, verse 5. We didn't take any money from you, though as apostles working for your good, we certainly have, could have taken a salary, but we didn't, verses 9 and 10. We worked second jobs. Instead, we did whatever we could do in order not to be a burden. Now, that's the context behind this passage. And as we look at what Paul's ministry was, it was like, it, it gives us a sense of what our 
ministries can be like. Corporately, as a church, right? How do we go into our neighborhoods? How are we sent into our city to care for people and to witness to the gospel? But also, you know, as individuals, right? Not just pastors and missionaries and campus ministers and elders and deacons and Bible study leaders, but everybody, right? Volunteer youth leaders, new city kids teachers, greeters, uh, hospitality workers making uh, coffee, community group leaders, ESL teachers, whiz kids, tutors, and on and on. And really just all of our lives with the people in our block and in our schools and our workplaces. What does good ministry look like? And the outline is right there in the sermon title this morning. Two things, courage and care. Courage and care. So let's look at it that way. All right, first courage, verse one. Paul says, for you yourselves know, brothers, our coming to you is not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And the first thing to take note of is that ministry takes boldness. Ministry takes boldness. Now, the truth is, Paul's courage never really should have come into question, right? Because the Thessalonians knew what they had been through even before they got to Thessalonica, right? Paul talks about what they suffered at Philippi. And then you can read about this in Acts chapter 16. But Paul and Silas had been stripped and beaten. They were thrown into prison. Their feet were fastened into stocks. Extremely painful experience. Also a humiliating one, right, since they were flogged naked in public. I don't know, maybe that doesn't bother you. That sounds pretty humiliating to me. Without trial, in spite of their Roman citizenship. He says we had boldness in the midst of much conflict. And that word for conflict there, it's the Greek term that you would use to describe uh, wrestling in the Olympic Games, right? He's talking about a struggle, We were bold in the midst of a painful struggle. We continued to preach the gospel. Paul's saying it takes courage to be public with your faith, especially when it would cost you something. Now, every Sunday morning, about 8 a.m., I get an email uh, with updates on the house church movement in China. Updates on who's been questioned that week by the police. Updates and prayer requests for churches that have been harassed. Updates sometimes about folks who've been imprisoned for their faith. It's a reminder and a call to prayer. It takes courage and boldness to do ministry in the face of much conflict. And that's just one part of the world, right? There are stories like this all over the globe and certainly throughout all of history. And even if it's a bit less dramatic here in Cincinnati, I bet there will be times where to be public with your faith will take Courage, right? There's a risk of the awkwardness or, or being misunderstood if you broach the subject of your faith, your coworkers, your classmates, your neighbors. There's the possibility of mocking or scorn at school, right? If you identify yourself as a Christian, maybe the loss of a friend group at work. You might have to walk away with, from some money, right? Or, or perhaps maybe even put your employment at risk if you know there's something ethically dubious that you know you can't participate in. Ministry takes boldness. It also takes faithfulness. Verse four, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. Now that phrase, entrusted, 
with the gospel. That's the language of stewardship. You know what a steward is, right? Steward's not the owner, right? They don't possess the thing that they're in charge of, but they've been given some management. They've been given a task. They've been uh, charged with doing the the bidding of the the real owner, the real master. And, And five times in this chapter, Paul says this message that he's proclaiming, it's not his own. It comes from God. And so he has to be a faithful steward of it. He says, I can't change it. I can't cover it over. I can't water it down. I can't keep it to myself. I have to be a steward of what God has given to me. And the same is true for all of us, right? The church has a message to proclaim, something that God has entrusted to us. The apostles' teaching, the story of Jesus has come down to us in the scriptures. We have to steward it well. We must guard it, witness to it, pass it on to others as we can. And Paul says we must do this not to please man, but to please God, verse 4. Not to please man, but to please God. Now, maybe it's a little cliche here, but it might be helpful to think about this under that term of living for an audience of one, right? Living for an audience of one. Not to please man, but to please God. We live for an audience of one. In other words, we're uh, meant to not constantly be trying to please everyone, exhausting yourself, right? Trying to figure out what does everybody want from me? What it means instead, though, to please God. Living before the pleasure of God. And that's why Paul says he can be free of flattery, he's free of greed, he's free of seeking the glory of men because he's so laser-focused on what God wants him to say and what God wants him to do. Now, I should say here, just by way of parentheses for a second, you know, there is a wrong way, I think, to take that idea and apply that idea. Um, There's a a hurtful way even to think about living for an audience of one, and, and maybe you've been around this. Maybe you've even done this, right? There's some people who say, all right, you know, uh, the most important thing for me is, is to discover who I really am and who God has created me to be. And so that's the most important thing. And so uh, uh, other people in my life, their expectations, my commitments to them, let that all be damned because the most important thing is who God has made me to be and God wants me to be happy. And so I'm going to pursue what my happiness is because clearly that's what God wants. And it doesn't matter uh, what other people think or it doesn't matter who I might hurt because that's the most important thing. And listen, isn't that really just a kind of selfishness dressed up in spiritual words? And I'll tell you, this is not what Paul has in mind. There's even a more extreme version of this, right? And this usually plays out, unfortunately, with leaders, and particularly Christian leaders in churches sometimes. This is where a leader can say something like, look, I'm going to follow the Lord. No matter what anyone else said, I'm going to follow the Lord. And if you get in the way of that, I'm just going to truck you in the midst of it, right? Uh, This is what God has called me to. Get on board or get run over. And we've heard... Stories like that, maybe you've experienced a story like that. Never mind that Jesus was one of whom it was said, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not snuff out. More extreme still, nations, groups, tribes have used this idea to justify violence and harm and abuse in the name of God. I want to be clear here. This is not what Paul has in mind. This is not what Paul has in mind. Living 
Not to please men, but to please God. Living for an audience of one. For Paul, he believes this actually sets him free to love other people. Not to disengage from other people, not to ignore the needs of other people, but really to love them. Because instead of spending so much time exhausting himself, trying to figure out what everybody wants from him, which, by the way, if you're mostly thinking about what do they, what do they think of me, you're making it about you. The transaction, the interaction is less about how do you love somebody else, but boy, what do I get out of it? Do they, do they love me? Do they like me? Are they, are they approving of me? You're making that about yourself. Paul says, no, look, when we live to please the Lord, it actually frees us up to love other people. It frees us up to think about how, what God would want for other people. One pastor, Philadelphia, Tuck Bartholomew, he says, uh, if we really get this idea, living for an audience of one, not living to please men, but to please God, two freedoms will come into your life. Two freedoms will come into your life. Number one, you'll have the freedom to disappoint others. Now, this is going to sound a little counterintuitive or a little bit uh, like it's in juxtaposition to what I just said, but, but hang with me for a second. To really love other people, you actually do need the freedom to disappoint others. Now, you shouldn't be setting out to disappoint others. You shouldn't be charged up to disappoint others. That's, that's kind of weird, right? Uh, you shouldn't thrive on that. But listen, if you do live to please God and not to please men... You won't be consumed with what everyone's opinion of you is. You won't always be thinking about that and using that as the rubric for how you interact with other people. You won't be paralyzed, wondering all the time, what do they think of me? Do they like me? What do they want from me? Instead, you'll be freed up to ask, what would God want for them? How can I really love them? How can I give them uh, the best of what there is in the world? How can I show them God's love for them? And you know if you've tried to really care for somebody else, you know that at least at some points, loving someone does involve a kind of disappointment. Because you might have to say a hard thing. You might have to tell somebody, somebody that you care about something that's true, but they don't really want to hear. If you're living to please them, you'll never do that. Because you're less concerned for their good than you are for how they view you. You'll fear their disappointment too much. But if you're living to please God, then you'll know that what God wants for them is the best for them. And sometimes that involves tough love or a hard word. You know, nobody loved better than Jesus. And yet you read the Gospels, and sometimes people were disappointed in Jesus, right? Even the disciples, even his closest friends, they didn't always get what they wanted from Jesus. In fact, they're complaining a lot of times. Why won't you give us the highest places, right? Why won't you give us... The places of power. Why do you keep telling us to take the low place? Why are you always talking about taking up your cross? Why are you going to Jerusalem to die rather than to conquer? Jesus, in following the will of the Father, was willing to disappoint people sometimes and thereby also to really love them and to give them what they needed. So if you live for an audience of one, you'll have the freedom to, to disappoint others and thereby to love them. But secondly... Right? If you live for an audience of one, to please God and not to please men, you'll also find a freedom to engage when you have been disappointing. And here I'm talking about a disappointment that's not so much uh, what we were talking about before, not because you're loving somebody so well that you have to say a hard thing, but I'm talking about those times when you disappoint somebody else because you, you actually blew it. Right? You made a mistake. You failed. You sinned. You hurt somebody. Now, what do we do when that happens? If you are consumed 
with the other person's opinion, if you're living to please them and you did blow it and they're disappointed in you, well, that can be crushing, number one. But number two, you're going to be motivated to cover that up, right? If the highest value is them being pleased with you and you failed, you messed up, you, uh, you sinned against them, you blew it, what are you going to do? You're going to, you're going to, you're going to lie. You're going to cover it up or at least you're going to minimize it. You'll get defensive. You'll say, okay, it was wrong, but it's really not that big a deal. You shouldn't be that upset about it. You should be happy with me, not disappointed in me. You're going to tell them how they should feel about the thing that you did. Or maybe you just take off, right? You disengage altogether. Break off the relationship entirely because you'd rather run away than deal with somebody's disappointment. But listen, if you live before the face of God, in the pleasure of God, and you know the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came to die for your sins and that he rose again and that because of Christ, God is pleased with you, that when he looks at you, when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ draped all over you. When that's true and somebody's disappointed in you, you can say, all right, this is not gonna be easy, but I can engage, I can deal with this, I can own it. I can respond well to their hurt. Right? When confronted with how you've hurt somebody, you can say you're sorry. You can really try to make it right because you know that even though you've blown it, you have the love of God set upon you. You have the freedom to engage rather than disengage. Do you have that freedom? That comes from living to please God and knowing that in Christ he's pleased with you. Do you have the courage and the boldness to be a faithful witness to the gospel in all the roles and all the places that he sends you? Paul's talking here about the essentials of good ministry, and courage is at the top of the list. But secondly, he talks about care. Now, remember the objection, right, that his detractors have, and they're saying, all right, Paul, yes, Paul started the church, he did a good job getting things started here, but he's gone, and he hasn't come back, and that means he doesn't care. And Paul says in response to this, no way. Right? You know how he lived among you. And then he gives three metaphors. Well, two metaphors and more of a statement. But he gives a picture of how he loved them, how he cared for them. He says first, verse 7, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I, uh, I don't get a chance to watch uh, Saturday Night Live much anymore. I work on Sunday morning, so at least I don't watch it live on Saturday nights. Uh, as much as I did. But I do really like to watch the uh, fake ads that they do, you know, the spoof commercials that they do on Saturday Night Live, and I end up sort of looking those up the week afterward. And there's one that I really liked from a couple of years ago. It was uh, for a spoof on uh, Duolingo, which is the, um, the language learning app, right? But this was Duolingo for kids, right, for talking to kids. This is for people who are around children uh, but feel like you have no idea how to talk to kids, right? Maybe some of you would be helped by this, right? So a Duolingo for kids, uh, you use the app to learn how to say things like, uh, cool backpack, <laughs> you know, uh, or to learn the I've got your nose trick with your thumb, you know, in the hand, or to say things like, I bet you like chicken fingers, you know. <laughs> All the conversation starters you need to engage with children. Uh, I was thinking of that this week because John Stott, commenting on verse 7, he says there's something like this cooked into the Greek in this verse. He says, this is what Stott says, he says, a mother comes down to their level, uses their language, 
and plays their games. Paul does ministry, not in a cold way, not in a standoffish way, right? Not from a pedestal, speaking down, looking down, talking down, but instead getting down like a mother on her hands and knees with her children, finding ways to communicate that they can understand. Paul says that's what he did in ministry. It's also a note of tenderness in this, right? Like, like a nursing mother with her own children. There's no abuse here. There's no lording it over here. Paul says, we didn't seek to even burden you with things that maybe were even legitimate, but we went out of our way to be gentle with you. And then there's sacrifice. Mothers sacrifice a lot for their children. And this is a fitting image because far from using the Thessalonians to get his needs met, Paul describes their ministry as one of pouring themselves out in order to be a blessing. And summing this all up, John Stott says, it is a lovely thing that a man as tough and masculine as the Apostle Paul should have used this feminine metaphor. Some Christian leaders become both self-centered and autocratic. The more their authority is challenged, the more they assert it. We all need to cultivate more in our ministry of the gentleness, love, and self-sacrifice of a mother. Do we fit what Paul's describing? In the way that we care for each other, and the way that we reach out to the people in our lives, in our community groups, in our Sunday school classes, in our Bible studies, do we do the work of ministry with gentleness and love and the self-sacrifice of a mother? And Paul goes on. Verse 11, he says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So it's not just motherly care, but fatherly care that's a model for us in ministry. And Paul tells us what that's like, what he has in mind. He says, we exhorted you, like, like he's cheering them on, right? Like a coach. Being a Christian in the first century, being a Christian in the Roman Empire was not easy. And so there's some cheering on that's needed, right? Some, some keep going, you can do it. Somebody cheering you on at the end of a race. Uh, he says, we encouraged you. Later on in 1 Thessalonians 5, that word for encourage is used in the context of comforting the faint-hearted. And even in English, there's something about that, right? The word, etymology of the word encourage, you know what it means? Literally, to encourage somebody is to pour courage into them. Isn't that a cool concept to think? You have the opportunity to pour courage into people. By the way, the that you love them and come alongside them and care for them. Part of care is to help people when they are weak and faint-hearted, to pour courage into them. And then lastly, Paul says, we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. We charged you. This is the note of challenge, right? Calling them to something more. And we need people in our life like that who will call us to something more, who will call us to live in the way of Jesus, even when it's hard, and then to cheer us along when we make progress and to encourage us when we grow weak or faint-hearted. We need that. All of us need that. But we also need to do it for others as well. Paul likens ministry to both that of being a mother and a father. And the third way he talks about care is up close. Right? Up close with your life. Verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you have become very dear to us, he says. And this is what a friend does, right? 
sharing with you your very self. Proverbs says there's a friend that sticks closer even than a brother. There are friends who can be even more dear, more close, more present than even a family member. A whole lot of ministry comes down to this, being open to being a spiritual friend to somebody else. You know, each summer I try to read uh, at least one baseball book. And uh, this year I read a spiritual biography of Jackie Robinson. Some of you know about Jackie Robinson. He was uh, the man who broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball. If you've seen the movie 42, I really recommend it. You should watch it. You should watch it this week. It's your homework. Uh, last, last week of the baseball season, or last two weeks of the baseball season anyway. Uh, watch 42. But you see, Jackie Robinson, I mean, he went through a tremendous amount of abuse and difficulty, so many obstacles, right? Terrible discrimination in order to become the first African-American player in the major leagues. And the book tells the story of his very deep, committed spiritual life, right? And how that affected both his baseball career, but also his leadership in the civil rights movement later on. But it didn't start that way for him. Jackie Robinson was not always spiritually grounded. His mother, Mally, was a Christian, a committed Christian. But as Jackie was growing up in Pasadena, California, without his father, things were not on a good trajectory for him as a teenager. He was angry. Angry that his dad had left. He was angry at the injustice he was seeing in the country in the 50s and the 60s. He was uh, angry and tired of seeing his mom work her fingers to the bone 60, 70, 80 hours a week and just barely able to put food on the table for their family. Then he was acting out, starting to get in trouble at school, starting to get in trouble with the law. And then Carl Downs came into Jackie Robinson's life. Carl Downs was the new pastor at Jackie's mom's church. He was young. He was 26, 27 years old, just about 10 years older than Jackie Robinson. And on the first day of his job at the church, it said he drove around to the playgrounds around the church, and he yelled out to the boys in the playground, I want to see you boys in church on Sunday. And Jackie Robinson was one of those boys. I'm not sure that's always the most effective means, but it worked. <laughs> In this case, it worked because Jackie Robinson showed up to church and then Carl Downs befriended him and they played golf together and they played basketball together and they ate lunch together and they talked about life together and Carl shared with Jackie Robinson the gospel and he also shared with him his very self. And Jackie Robinson would say he changed his life forever. When we think about ministry to others, we're to offer not just words but our, our very selves when somebody needs their hand held, you hold it. When someone falls down, you pick them up. When somebody needs a nudge, you give it. And most of all, you give your time and your attention and your presence. And maybe some of you have been the beneficiaries of this kind of ministry. Somebody's poured into you like this. If that's true, let me encourage you this week. Here's some more homework. Let me encourage you this week to take some time to give thanks for that. If there's been somebody who's who's poured into your life like that. Give thanks to God in prayer, but then maybe sit down and actually write a note of thanks, calling out that specific person who has blessed you. But then let me also encourage you this week to think about what it means to take up your calling in this world, right? With whom and where do you have a ministry? All of you do. If you're a follower of Jesus, with whom and where 
Do you have a ministry? It might be an actual position that you hold, right, at a church like ours, a New City Kids teacher, a greeter, a community group leader, Bible study leader, whatever it may be, but it might also be informally just ministry of proximity. Who has God put into your life, in your neighborhood, in your school, or at work? And let me encourage you to take up that calling and do it with courage and do it with faithfulness. Give not just your words, but give your very self. Ask God that we would become more faithful, more gentle, more encouraging in the days to come. And may we do it all, living to please God and for his glory. So let's pray together to that end. And then we're going to come to the Lord's Supper, which is meant to give you strength for that task ahead this week. So let's pray. And then we'll come and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Father, we do give you thanks for those people in our lives who have poured into us. Lord, if we can think of specific people, we give thanks right now in our hearts and our minds for your putting those people into our lives, for the sacrifices that they made, the ways that they were a blessing to us. And I pray... Father, as well, that you might give us opportunities. Help us to think where and with whom we might have ministry. Help us to think of the people whose lives we have the opportunity to impact and the roles that we hold, but just in the proximity that we have, the places you have put us. And Lord, would you help us to do this work well? Would you help us to be more faithful, more gentle, more encouraging in the days to come? And may we do it all to please you and for your glory. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.